0: Good morning. It's uh, great to be with you on this beautiful northwestern day. Boy, did it rain last night, huh? My son came to our house about six weeks ago. He has done roofing and he patched some areas around the chimney and he patched the vent above our bathroom. And guess what? It didn't leak. We had success, and we're grateful for that. Talking about money in church is not easy, especially for pastors. I've learned that over the years. Money is a very personal thing, and it's probably difficult for all of us to deal with in some way. But someone said money's not in first place Money may not be in first place, but whatever is behind it is way behind. If you look at our culture today and you read magazines like Fortune or Money or the Wall Street Journal or all the rest of them, you would think that that's the thing that really drives America. And in many ways it does, doesn't it? Money is, well, it's something that's essential to live on every day and yet it's possible to let that be the thing that controls and rules your life. When I first, uh, Jane and I have been here about a year and a half, when we first came I had a chance to meet and visit with Bill and shared with him what I had done in one of my previous lives, which was to serve as a consultant to churches and parishes around the country in capital campaigns. Now you know and you're going to hear more about it at the business meeting, that our church has pretty well reached its limits in terms of physical space and also in parking. And the groups that study this kind of thing know that if you're at a certain percentage of capacity or your parking lot is full, people tend to just drive on by because they figure there's no room. And if there are people in our community, both Yakult, Amboy, and surrounding, who need this kind of teaching and fellowship and prayer, then you hope you can have the facilities to serve them. It's all about ministry. And so I told Bill I would help in any way I could in a campaign like that, if that's what the church chooses to do. And so I also told Bill I have, in working with churches and parishes, I've put together uh, an exposition of Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 which are the two chapters that Paul deals with giving and not just giving in terms of money but giving your whole life, everything that you are and that's what I want to address the next two Sundays but first, and if you have your bulletin I, want you, I hope you have something to write with And you might feel this is redundant. If you don't, there are pencils back there. But you know, I taught school for a number of years. And when you study teaching, you learn that if people hear it, they remember just a small amount of it. If they write it down, that increases the level of understanding. If they then share it with someone else, that increases it even more. If they actually have to teach it to someone else, that even takes it further. Um, as Bill said, we're a part of, Jane and I are part of two growth groups, and we had a great time on Thursday in both the afternoon and the evening group. Our afternoon group is me and six, seven ladies. Yeah, it's called a harem. No, I'm just teasing. (laughs) Ah, shame, Shame on me. Lynn's in the other one. Wait till I get to you, Lynn. But you know, when we went around and talked about the Word of God, it was great to hear of the individual programs that people have to read God's Word. Because historically, the groups that do the surveys over and over find out that most people don't even give the Word of God two minutes a day. Now, if that's the heart of our life based on what we say, how do you survive on two minutes a day? How would we do on physical food on two minutes a day? Not too well. But I was just pleased with that. And then our evening group, which meets at Bill and Judy's Masons, we went around, and in general, everyone had some type of program to read Scripture. And what I'm going to share with you about Paul's teaching in Corinthians is really rooted on Scripture. And if we don't have a heart, or we're lazy, or we're distracted by money or things, possessions, it's hard to get to what God really wants us to do. It's easy to ignore. So in keeping with what Bill shared with us last week, I'm just going to review those words and you can write them again. Because some of you weren't writing last week. I watched. <laughs> so Bill shared that the benefits of God's Word and the counsel of God's Word are critical in our lives. So it's the benefits of God's Word. And he, he describes some of those benefits that enter our life every day. And you know what? If you're like me, and I think most of us are similar, what I put in is what comes out, right? And I try and make the Word of God a a vital part of my daily life. And you know what God does? He brings, maybe not the exact words, but He brings the thoughts of His Word to my mind every day. Or I may be driving in my car and I remember Scripture, and in addition to that, I learned hymns when I was a child. We had a hymn book, which is passé today, and I'm not saying that's good or bad, but uh, I still have my father's hymn book that's 86 years old. And I sing that in the morning to myself so Jane doesn't run out of the house. But hymns that are focused on God's Word also reinforce God's Word because most of them are based on the character and the person of God in Jesus Christ. That's pretty good food, folks, believe me. And then scripture is God-breathed and equips us for godly living. When we say scripture is God-breathed, then it's a, it's, the word inspired is not a good translation. Inspired means you put something into what's already there. But God-breathed meant those very words came from God in those original letters and manuscripts. And it's amazing that after 3,000 years, the accuracy of all those books and letters are better than anything else in ancient literature. The the textual support for the New Testament is better than the support for William Shakespeare. And that came, what, 1,500 years later. It's amazing because those scribes and those authors perceived they were handling something pretty special. It was the word of God that was breathed out from God's own mouth. So, pay attention to it. Don't make um, excuses for not reading God's word. Make sure it's regular, that it's a routine that you do. Now, for me, the morning is the best time. For some, it's the evening. For some, it's whenever. Some listen to it in the car, on the radio, on an MP3 or a CD. Whatever you do, have a regular Routine for God's word. Otherwise, it's pretty hard to hear God when you don't have His word hidden in your heart. God has always existed, and He is perfect. He's always existed. I believe in. I'm not a scientist, but you know, you really have two options for the origin of things. One is to be a materialist, where you say everything is matter's always been here. Or you believe that there's an infinite God who's always been here. And when you look at people just sitting here, it's hard for me to accept that we just came from hard matter and you now have a human being. I don't care how many billions of years you give it. To get from the non-living to the living to a human being is a huge stretch. And you say, well, I, you know, it's hard to believe that there's a God who's always been there. Well, it does demand faith. But I think when you exercise that faith... As the writer to Hebrews said, God, you first believe in him, then he rewards your faith. It comes in that order, and I think that's very important. God came to atone for our sins, and the church is the apple of his eye. Jesus said, I've come to do your will. And he set his face as a flint to the cross, and he never turned aside. He didn't waver in the purpose that God sent him. And the church is the apple of his eye. Now, we are a local church here in Yakov, And we're a part of probably thousands upon thousands of local churches all over the world. We are the apple of his eye. God doesn't care if you drive a Ford or a Cadillac or you live in a fancy house or a tent. We are the apple of his eye. Now, I tell you, if that's not humbling, I don't know what is. That the God of the universe looks at Mike and Jane and Debbie and Jim and says, you are a part of the apple of my eye. That ought to make you a little bit proud, right? That God loves us in that way, in spite of who we are. A healthy church has every part working. Because we're likened to a body. And I notice you have crutches this morning, young man. So you have a part of your body not working. What happened? You rolled your ankle. Now, does it affect the rest of your body? somewhat. Somewhat, but it does, right? You can't just isolate it to the ankle. If you hit your thumb with a hammer pretty hard, is it just your thumb that hurts? Oh, no, you just wish it would disappear. And you see, that's the analogy that Paul uses in Scripture. We're a body made up of many parts. And if each part does not function properly, you subtract something from the body. So you and I have a personal responsibility to find out how do we fit into the body of Christ. I am thrilled, since we've been here, to see the high level of involvement in our church. And I know there are people who will do anything for anybody else. There's that spirit of generosity. Look at the shoebox thing where you're trying to fill 100 shoeboxes. I'm sure they will get to be 100. Or if we find there's a special need and people need some money, I know that this congregation will rise to that occasion. That's a great example of the body working together. But you can always do better, right? We can always do more. And we're challenged towards excellence in Scripture. Sin offends God. And even when it's forgiven, there are consequences. I believe the controlling attribute of God's character is his holiness. When Isaiah saw the Lord, what did he say? Holy, holy, holy. When Moses was at the burning bush, what did God tell him? Take your shoes off, Moses, because you're standing on holy ground. And I don't think there's any other way you can look at God other than To see everything through his holiness because he can't tolerate sin. If he could, then why would he send his son to die for our sins? It wouldn't be needed. He might say everybody has to come up with a million dollars, or you've got to work 24 hours a day for a week. Something that involves human effort. Salvation has no human effort, it's a gift that you accept. Jesus died for our sins, and he rose again for our justification. And every person who comes to that cross and receives the forgiveness for your sin, you have eternal life. You'll be with God forever. <clears throat> Some people, and I think I'm in that boat sometimes, we take sin lightly. Well, it's just a little thing. You know, I told a lie, but it had no real impact. But there are consequences to Sin. And God will forgive our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But there are consequences. And I think a great example of that is David and Bathsheba. Because David lost his son because of that sin. God took him to heaven. And we know from experience in our lives that there are things that we have done that are forgiven, but the consequences stay on. I remember when I was in university and attending University Christian Fellowship in Los Angeles. The leader of that group, he said, "If for no other reason than the Bible, I would never be unfaithful to my wife because it would destroy my children." You see, there's a consequence to those sins. And so think hard before you think sin doesn't really matter. It does matter in our lives. And God forgives. Thank God he does. But it would be better if you didn't sin in the first place. Right? Okay. The Corinthian church had a lot of problems in it. Which is where the two chapters come from. There were divisions. There was immaturity. There was immorality. There were lawsuits in pagan courts. There was inattention to Israel's history. And there was unconfessed sin at the Lord's table. How would you like to join that church? Didn't sound too holy to me, does it? It sounds like they had a lot of problems. And Corinth was a wicked city. It was a pagan city. Not much went on there was well. And here was Paul. There was a church established in Corinth. And they had all these problems. Paul wrote them two letters. And he addressed those problems all through his first letter and into the first half of his second letter. When you think of your life as a part of this church, I hope you perceive that as being an integral part of the church. Regardless of the giftings that God has given to you, you are needed in this church to make a difference. And in looking forward to whatever happens in a new facility, I know from my experience that one of the key ingredients of being successful in that kind of a campaign is involvement at whatever level from 100% of the people who consider this church. It's not a deal where you say, well, you know, we've got Bill, we hire, and we've hired Joe now, and we've got Carrie in the office, and we have elders, and we have deacons, and we have the head of men's ministry and women's ministry, and we've got a missions commission. Well, if you add all those people up, that may be what? 25% of the body of believers here. What about the 75%? And you're involved in other ways. But to make this successful, all of us are going to have to raise the ante in terms of our own time, talents, and treasure. If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In the first seven chapters of his second letter, Paul addressed the things of daily living. He want, in the first letter, he dealt with errors. In the second letter, he's dealing, now what do you do? How do you live as a believer? And so in those first seven chapters, he addresses all that. You know, he wrote almost half of the New Testament books. Paul was a well educated man. That's not necessarily why God chose him. But he was a Pharisee. He was at the top of his of his profession. And when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was humbled and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And Paul became a believer and he left aside that horrible life where he was was actually chasing down Christians To kill them. And remember in Acts chapter 8, when they killed Stephen, where did his garments go? At the feet of Saul. And so Saul was not a good guy. But when you look at what he wrote in those letters and what he writes in Corinthians, that turnaround is amazing, only done by the Holy Spirit. Also, in the world that he lived in, in the Roman Empire, two out of every three people were slaves. Now, at one time in our country, we had three to four million slaves. Can you imagine today, out of a population of 350 million, if two out of three were slaves, how that would change the nature of the church? And of our lives, it would be unbelievable. Well, that's what it was like in Corinth. So if you would take your notes, I would like to start dealing with the giving principles that are addressed in chapter 8. And I'm going to read this chapter and hopefully give you some time to jot down those words. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe testing by affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. People often tell me, Andy, if you work a campaign or a parish, does it make a difference how wealthy the church is? If you have uh, people with a lot of money, does it make the campaign easy? And I've learned that that's not true. In fact, some of the best campaigns I've had have been in churches that were not wealthy. They were poor. They didn't have a lot of resources. But for some reason, those people understand giving more than maybe some of us who have a lot of money. And so regardless of the issue of money, Paul addresses here that you were poor out of your poverty. And so the first principles that I find are that generosity has nothing to do with your possessions. So, do you think the widow with the two mites was generous? Why? You can answer back. I like dialogue. She gave all she had. And that was a million bucks, right? What did she have? Two coins. And in her case, she gave it all. Now, she was extremely generous. I worked a campaign with a gentleman who was one of our leaders, And he had made a gift of uh, $10,000. He'd written a card for $10,000. And then during one of our dinners, uh, a single mom stood up with two children. And she shared the process she had gone through to make her commitment to that church in a campaign. And I'll tell you, she had given up some of the basic necessities of life. To make a gift because she told the audience, this church is so important to me, I want to make sure we're successful in this campaign. Uh, that leader didn't come to me, but he went to the pastor and he said, you know, after listening to that lady, I realized that my gift of $10,000 uh, would not change my life one bit. In other words, he was giving out of his excess. and. That's good, but he went back and said, I've got to pray further about what God wants me to do. And he did, and he let the pastor know that he had increased his gifts significantly. So generosity is not based on your bank account or how many stocks you have. It's an attitude of the heart. Generosity is an attitude of the heart. You probably know people that you just say, man, they are just generous by nature. They just are those kinds of people. And you've probably met people who are, you know, kind of stingy. (laughs) They hold back. Who would you rather have as a friend? (laughs) I think probably those who are generous. So the challenge to us is that it's not how much you have, it's what's in your heart. So when you do giving, remember those principles. Let's keep on reading. I testify that on their own, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. Wow, that's pretty strong language. Giving is a privilege. It's not, oh man, I just can't get this wallet out of my pocket. (laughs) You know, oh yeah, I got one dollar today and so on. Um, I worked an awful lot in churches that were Roman Catholic where where, uh, in many years giving was not an issue because their priests really weren't paid and their schools were run by nuns who didn't get a salary in other words and and Helen knows this the need for a lot of money wasn't there and when that changed a dollar just wouldn't do it (laughs) and the whole level of what you had to give to sustain God's work, changed because of that. So number two, giving resources to others first involves giving yourself to God. How do you give yourself to God? What do you do to give yourself to God? Well, I think it starts with recognizing who He is and the great gift He's given to us in salvation. And a willingness to be a part of his word. To be a part of a local church. To say I'm in this for good. This is the heart of my life. To love God and to please him in whatever I do. If that's our attitude then giving to others becomes much simpler. And much easier. Let's keep reading. And uh, let me go back to four. They begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. And not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves especially to the Lord and to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete this grace to you. Now Now, as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence... And in your love for us, excel also in this grace. Giving money or resources, number three, goes hand in hand with other Christian graces and not isolated. You know, my own title for this message was, you know, Living by Giving or Giving is Living. And I would hope to communicate this morning that money is just one isolated part of what we give. Paul says we give of ourselves first. So if you look at this congregation, how do we give apart from resources? Anyone, what do you do when you give to this church apart from your resources? How do you do that? Okay, your time. What else? Your skills. What else? Okay, time is one. Anything more specific? Prayer. We haven't touched on prayer, but prayer is that communication back to God. Can you give to your neighbors through the church? People you live next to? I bet a lot of you do that. I know some of you live close to people that are older or not able to do the things they do. I know that some of you provide meals or firewood or labor. There's probably, if we were to know that all that goes on in this church, you'd see a huge web of interconnectedness from one member to another. And I believe that's the heart of Christianity. And I think when we do that right, it makes it a lot easier to deal with money. It's not a long sermon. It's probably too short. But I want to share a little bit about what I, what I believe is important from my perspective as a consultant for this church to be successful in terms of finding a facility that meets our needs. First of all, any effort you make to raise money has to focus on the ministries of the church. It has to deal with how we impact people. It's not building a monument to any one person. It's not going to be the Bill Douglas Memorial Church or something like that. It's a building that exists simply to do ministry. That's very important. Number two... When and if this church moves forward in a specific campaign it's going to take everybody no one can cop out and the kind of a program I do if the leaders choose to do that is to have specific leaders who have responsibilities for specific jobs but they have to recruit everybody else to get involved on their team so that involvement is a huge part of the success of a campaign. Number three is we need to do the best job we can to provide information as to why we're doing this and what are the consequences of what we do. And the last one is there must be a strong component of prayer and understanding stewardship as a way of life. And I think if those four ingredients are a part of our church and what we do in the future to see a facility that God will use in Yakult and Amboy, I think it'll be successful. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this book, for Paul's life, for how he shared from his guts and in all of his letters he didn't varnish over anything. We thank you for the examples that are given to us all through Scripture of people who learn to give in a generous way. We thank you we live in a community involved in a church that I think does a great job with that. Help us as we have a business meeting today and look to the future that you would guide the leadership of this church to know exactly what you want to happen here.